Hello, and welcome to Everyday Medicine. I'm Dr. Luke. In this podcast series, I'll be sharing conversations with colleagues, exploring their special interests in medicine and bringing insights, ideas, and advice for your medical practice. In the podcast today, we're joined in a conversation with a very experienced practitioner to discuss the sensitive subject of palliative care and end-of-life care. Palliative care is medical care focused on improving quality of life for people and families with serious illnesses. It aims to treat symptoms of the patient, including pain, dyspnea, nausea, vomiting, constipation, agitation, delirium, and emotional distress, such as depression, anxiety, and the patient's spiritual needs. It also has to support patient's family and loved ones, aligned with patient's preferences, values, and goals. This is a challenging task. As many patients and relatives journey through Kubler-Ross has described five life experiences, which include denial, isolation, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. To discuss her approach to palliative care, we are joined by a very experienced general practitioner who is much loved and respected in her community for three decades of incredible work and mentoring. Please welcome Dr. Sally McDonald. So uh, Dr. Sally McDonald, thank you very much for joining me on Everyday Medicine. And uh, today um, you've agreed to talk about a very sensitive issue, uh, palliative care, end of life care. And what has impressed me uh, and many of my colleagues about um, your involvement in our community is not just that you're an excellent general practitioner, but you also have that model of taking patients effectively from cradle to grave, which many people don't do anymore. You're there with the patients right through their life, particularly at the very, very difficult uh, end of life period you know, which, um, which is a very difficult um, thing for you and for other people who are involved in this to do emotionally. Um, can you tell us about palliative care? How do you approach a palliative care patient? What, what's your work up with that case? My palliative patients uh, come from two places. They come from either they're my, uh, my patients or sometimes they come uh, because patients don't have a, a GP who've moved, they've come to stay with their family in the area or... Um, they're looking for someone who's interested in palliative care and they would hear from somebody else that I am interested in palliative care. So sometimes I know nothing about them and sometimes I know everything about them. So usually when I start, um, I just would be trying to sort, you know, just a normal fact-finding consultation, see what what they're wanting. Mm. Um, It was really about what they're wanting at the end of life. I don't have any, uh, I don't impose any of my thoughts on it, I try and find out what they're wanting and how we might best supply it if they don't understand what palliative care is, because sometimes people think palliative care is um, it's a death sentence. Once you're having palliative care, that's mm. it, you're dead and buried, which it's not. Um, I will explain exactly that palliative care is 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 the time that, that when you have treatment to keep you comfortable when we can't provide curative care anymore and that might be a short time but it might also be a very long time depending on the patient. You've got patients that have got um, neurological diseases that can't be managed like motor neuron disease yes. and uh, MS uh, yeah. and final stages and you've got malignancies and uh, so emphysema. emphysema, I guess end-stage heart failure as yes. well. So there's lots of different sorts of yes. pathologies at play. Do you tend to have the discussion with the patient's family? Is that something that you feel is important? I think it's important to have the discussion both with the patient's family and with the patient alone sometimes. It depends on the 
family dynamics and interaction mm. at mm. times. And some patients are not well enough really to have it without their family. They can't always speak for themselves. But, um, yes, I, I like the family to be involved. I think if the family are not part of the discussion, it leads to um, uh, misunderstanding, uh, the potential for conflict um, and increased unhappiness. Uh, so I, I like yes, any, fa- I'm, any family is welcome to come with my patients or can be there. Yeah. Do, you, do you normally ask the patient to think about uh, an advanced care directive? Is that something that you have to do in palliative care and, and you know, from we the general practice We do try and do an advanced care directive and um, palliative care southeast, if they're already involved, will have done one if we haven't already done one. They're pretty quick at the, even at their first couple of consults, they will have um, sorted out an advanced care plan. But we, we can do, we do those if necessary, yes. What would also, be... power of attorney. The other things I've raised with families at the start is things like power of attorney and wills. Mm. This yeah. is one of the things that I find people just seem to forget about in, in their the life. Moment. And they yeah. literally leave their, particularly wills, till the last moment. Mm. And mm. can be extraordinarily difficult if the patient becomes uh, mentally affected. Yes. Yes. Uh, to, to creates a lot of family oh, discontent. Terrible. Yeah, so can do. it's good to, to raise that early yeah. because sometimes they just haven't thought about that at all. What, what would be the main question a patient would raise with you? Um, are they going to suffer, or you know, they're frightened of a, of pain or suffering in some way? Would that would be even if they don't raise it, you can tell by the questions they ask mm-hmm. around it. And the other thing is they're often frightened that their family is going to um, uh, be, bo- you know, by, be burdened by caring for them. Mm. And so they're mm. worried about their family as well. Mm. So it's really, it's the pain, it's the agony of the death they want it to be. Or nice. just the unknown. You know, nobody mm. likes to um, not know what's going to happen to them. And we're not a community that really talks very much about death mm. and dying. Mm. Um, mm. So for some people, it's not something they've really thought about. Or for some people, they've seen their mother, father, someone else die in terrible circumstances in the past mm. and they're terrified that's going to happen to them. So they may have a lot of um, psychological burden from previous losses mm. that they bring to their own um, thoughts of their own death. I, I read that in the United States, something like 75% of people die in a hospital yeah. or in an aged care facility of some kind, uh, and there's a, that small group, 25% are at home. It, it, is there a move to have palliative services in the home? Um, yeah, there, there's good palliative care services available in the home. Um, every region has a palliative care service that can send uh, nurses, occupational therapists, social workers, spiritual um, help as well um, to the patient's home. And uh, I think one of the things that the COVID um, pandemic has brought home is that people don't want to die in hospitals, especially when they might be not able to see mm-hmm. their, um, their, their, their loved person. Yeah, that's been a very sad situation. It's been terrible. And so we've actually probably had perhaps had more patients wanting to be at home than before and more patients wanting not to be in aged care because, A, they may get COVID after all the trouble we've had in Victoria. Yes. Or again, that they can't be with the person. It's, it's, it's been terrible for them. So how, how do you approach some of the concerns the patients have, their, say their pain, the, the concern of pain? And I guess not everyone has pain, but those no. that do. Yeah. How, how do you approach that in the palliative 
care? Um, um, I, I would be, I tell them that um, there's lots of different things that we can do for pain that it would be my job to do my best to make sure that they don't have uncontrolled pain and we've got lots of people to help us, the palliative care service, palliative care physicians. Mm. If you end up in hospital, the hospital will help you as well. Mm. So I try and reassure them that there's, there's lots of different things to help and if they bring up their relative that died horribly, mm. I say, well, we don't do things that way now and we, we have much better control with things like syringe drivers and a yes. wider range of drugs, mm. um, et cetera. So I, I, I try and be reassuring to them. That the syringe driver approach is that's at the very end of their. It, am I right in saying that? Is that Usually, the very end of their not, not care? always. Sometimes people are on it for quite a long time. Perhaps if they can't, or they have a reason why they can't tolerate oral okay. or um, uh, patch type medications. Yes. Um, and it, they can just de determine small aliquots of. Yeah, they just walk around with that. Okay. Um, for quite some, I've had someone go around for like a, a year once with ovarian cancer with a drive. It was quite a long time ago before we had patches. Yes, yeah. But yeah, she lived quite a normal life on her drive. What about the kind of the, the depression, anxiety? I guess that's a big part of the uh, the concerns patients have. Or and you're sort faced of with. existential sort of yes, um, spiritual suffering, I think, suffering. Is, is huge for patients. Um, and uh, that's something that, I'm happy to talk to them about. Uh, there are formal counsellors available through palliative care as well. But often, um, particularly I find if I visit them at home, often those, those discussions arise at the bedside. You know, I'm happy to go and see them at home. So it's something you can sit there and talk about. But you have to have a lot of time. You, like, you can't do that kind of conversation mm. in a 15-minute consult. No. Mm. You have to mm. have lots of time for... Um, dealing with depression and um, just that, yeah, I'd call it existential suffering that people have when they're preparing to leave this life and leave their family. And then the families have got the same yes. issues often. You're really treating two groups, aren't you? The yes. Relatives and the patient. Yes. What's your approach to the polypharmacy we see these days? Often patients are on statins and lots of drugs. And, um, and maybe in, if you can... In, in these, in, in generally in palliative cases, I try to minimise um, the other drugs. That I, I mean, sometimes they, they do need to keep going, their blood pressure tablets mm. or whatever. Mm. But the, the things that are unnecessary, I mean, statins are not going to make your palliative care patient live any longer. So what's, what's yes. the point? Yeah. So we try and make the, the pill burden... As small egg. as possible, yeah. Just the things they really need to keep them comfortable and happy and, you know, bowels and everything moving. Do, how do general practitioners in the community who are not involved in palliative care personally access this kind of service? Would, would they just, do they sometimes phone you, for example, through your practice or do you get contacted via palliative care? Uh, sometimes, uh, sometimes palliative care might ask me to take on someone that they don't have a doctor for, um, just someone who's moved into the area. But I think most general practitioners would, um, well, I suppose if they, don't, if they don't want to do palliative care themselves, they would talk to palliative care, the palliative care service. Palliative care service does have a, um, a physician that um, can provide... Um, medical visits if necessary, but they're not, they don't have enough time to provide a lot of medical visits, but they can provide uh, medical visits. 
if the, if the doctor doesn't want to do it. And the doctor can just provide services like providing the prescriptions. Right. Um, or, or not at all if, if that is what the person wants. It, it can be time-consuming and not everybody has the time or the or even feels comfortable with it maybe. Mm. Yeah, mm. so um, there. if you ask around, there are doctors, maybe even in one practice there'll be a doctor that does mm. more of it than others um, and I, will take those patients on. Yeah, I suspect it takes a very sort of special personality, special person like you to, to be able to sit down with patients and have that time, which I know is not remunerated at all well, to, to, to do this. So it's not, it's not a calling for every doctor. No. No, but I, I actually, I, I find it very rewarding, but it's not financially rewarding, but that doesn't matter. I have to do, you know, we have other areas of general practice to, for that. But um, I just think being able to help someone at the end of their life and prevent them suffering, I think that's probably one of the most worthwhile things you can do for a patient at, at, at the end of their life. What advice would you give to a young doctor um, who maybe had a, a terminally ill patient, a patient that's yeah. requiring palliative services, just in terms of advice about how to talk to that patient, how to approach that patient. Um, I'd be telling the the, the uh, doctor that, I mean, you have to you have to play the patient as as you see them because patients are all different. But um, to try and be to deal with as honestly as possible, to talk from the heart—that's how I normally do it. Um, to listen to your patient, listen to the family take their concerns seriously, even if they seem sometimes unusual or even trivial sometimes, mm. but um, be really, really honest. If you don't know, mm. say so. You can always get help. There's always heaps of help. You can always find someone to ring up and find out the answer to your problem. Mm. Mm. Um, and, and to a degree, let the patient lead the, the discussions um, when, when that's appropriate and possible. Do you find that there's any kind of conflict between palliative care services and voluntary assisted dying? You know, you've been involved in both. Oh, yeah. um, do, do you feel that that is there a? I think it's a continuum. A smooth continuum. Yeah, I think it's a smooth continuum. Not everybody agrees, and many people are vehemently opposed, including some people in palliative care. Mm. But um, I think it's a continuum. You know, we palliate people mm. um, all the time, and that 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 eases their way from this world. Voluntary assisted dying gives the patient um, personal um, choice and control over their end that they don't have. I mean, we doctors, we tend to, we tend mm. to run the show mm. generally mm. and, you know, we're going to put your phone up or we're going to do this mm. or whatever. Mm. But um, with voluntary assisted dying, if the patient feels that they might, um, that they want to pass, okay, then they've got it there to take. And that just gives them a quick exit rather than a slow mm. and prolonged exit. But, you know, some people who get the um, permit, some people use it, some people yes. don't use it. Yes. It's, it's, very, um, it's very variable. And what I notice about my discussions with those patients is most of them want it because they're frightened. They're, mm. They want a safety belt. You know, they're frightened that... Mm. The pain might get too bad. The doctors mightn't be able to manage it. Mm. Um, they might become, I don't know, incontinent yeah, or they, they're, for long yeah, lots of yes. things yeah. that that they have fears for. Yes. And this is something that gives them control. Yes. Otherwise, I think in medicine, often you know we have the control, and that's not always uh, what patients want, really. 
I think I think that's the main. It's really about yeah. control of mm. their own destiny. Ian Maddox said that um, he said, and I quote: "Sometimes I think it's better to um, to stop back and say you don't need all that procedural stuff that we sometimes do in oh, hospitals. Yeah. So what you need is uh, good care. Now you're going to die. Let's do it well." Yes, that's a, that's and, uh, a nice thing. Although sometimes telling people you're going to stop their treatment can be very very frightening for them. Yes. Yes, um, um, it's a different sort of treatment, I guess, yeah. rather than just yeah. withdrawing. I think you have, to, you have to be careful about how you explain yeah. that the treatment isn't doing them... I mean, some people will tell you themselves that the treatment's not doing them any good and they're fed up with it and they want to stop. But for some people, telling them that the treatment that they're having is, um, is not helping them, that it's making them sicker, that it's not going to make them live any longer, it has to be done very subtly and gently so that they don't feel like they're being abandoned. Yeah. Um, and that palliative care does have have something to offer them that they're not just being, you know, forgotten. Yeah. Sally, how do you look after yourself? How do you unburden yourself from some of the the, you know, the emotional energy that you have to uh, have to put into these cases? Do you have oh, a way look, of escaping? Oh, I have a horse. <laughs> She's lame. <laughs> uh, but usually, no, usually through talking. The I think vets talk, love you. Yeah, yeah, the vets do love me. Um, I think mostly probably through talk. I talk to my partners. I mean, we've got yes. a big clinic now, so we've yes. got lots of opportunities to talk yeah. to other doctors and uh, we take registrars. So through teach, I think through teaching, you get to talk about some of these experiences well and talking about them mm. is probably the best yeah. way. So, it's so important to have our colleagues around supporting us, isn't it? Yeah, In every fantastic. aspect of medicine. Yeah. And your yeah. family. Yeah. You know, yeah. I can talk, come home and moan to Doug that you know, things haven't gone well or that I feel stressed mm. and um, mm. you know, it's, it's good to have support in both ways and not to um i like um samuel shem's um you know the patient is the one with the disease that's yes, yes. it's the a good God. It, it's a good motto to have because you can't take every patient no matter how i mean there's so many sad tragic cases that we see all the time you mm. can't take them all home to bed and mm. and worry about them or it, it kills you you've got to be able to leave them at work come home have a normal life ride the horse okay yeah and then go back to work and pick it up tomorrow. Then you can then you can go back to work and pick it up tomorrow. If you spend all night worrying about them, uh, I think it's very hard to stay in medicine and be happy. Sally, thank you very much for your care of those patients and for taking the time to talk to me today. Oh, thank, thank you. Very you. Much. Thank you for talking to me, thank Luke. You. I'm you. sorry about all the background noise. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Sally McDonald as much as I did. I think Sally exemplifies Professor Ian Maddox's philosophy of palliative care, helping patients through that last journey of their life with incredible dignity. During the podcast series, we will be covering a wide range of topics across many specialty interests. The discussions are not intended as specific medical advice for patients, but as general information only and reflect the opinions of the guests interviewed. Requests for new topics to be reviewed and comments about the conversation you've listened to are welcomed and maybe email to manager at gihealth.com.au.